So we're going to do um, mainly really talk this afternoon about how do we, you know, deal with addictions and bad habits. How do we overcome them? And and also uh, some section on how do we actually help others who have the same issues. So uh, especially if you get involved with, with ministry work, one of the challenges you face is that you run into people who really have serious problems in, in terms of different addictions or habits. I remember when I was a kid in Connecticut and every summer we had 10 efforts and we had these big evangelistic crusades. In fact, we started with um, the Faith Seventh-day Adventist Church, just faith in Hartford. And by the time I was 15 and moved to Miami, there was faith, hope, and charity. And all of the churches were big churches. Even now, there are three very large churches, and I think even more churches have grown out of our of those initial um, ten efforts that we called them crusades back then that we used to do. Um, and I remember, I as a, even as a boy would go with the um, the teams that would go to pass out tracks, and we went into one projects housing projects um, in a poor part of Hartford, and a, a gentleman and his wife was there, or his girlfriend, I don't even know if it was his wife, and he was standing outside smoking a cigar, um, she was smoking a cigarette, they were both uh, drinking alcohol, and we walk up to them with, you know, our little pamphlets and handouts and, and you know, trying to invite them to the tent effort, and it was really amazing because they, they actually were very receptive. And so we, we took pictures, actually, of them putting their cigarette and their cigar out and um, throwing away their alcohol. And they started coming to the tent efforts. And I think I may have gone back to Florida or something, but I missed the end of the meetings. And I remember coming back and seeing them again two or three years later. And them being strong members of the church, having overcome those addictions and having now being, are now being contributing Seventh-day Adventists and strong parts of the church. So, you know, sometimes we think, well, people have these problems, they can't, you know, there's nothing about them that can be redeemed and they brought it and brought it to our church. When in fact, I think in some ways, they can be some of the strongest members of our church because a lot of times the, um, addiction strips so much from you that it actually puts you in a very good place to build a relationship with Jesus Christ. They're very easily made, very, a lot often addicts are very selfless. Um, at the Veterans Hospital, where I did a lot of the addiction training that I did at Loma Linda, uh, in Loma Linda, there was a saying that they used to say at the end of their meetings, and they'd have these group meetings, and it stuck with me forever. And it was, um, they used to say, God made the human heart so big that only he can fill it. And this is what they said at the Veterans Hospital. And it's something I use in sermons all the time, and it's a very true statement. The addicts become so, you lose so much that sometimes the only thing, they realize the only thing in the world that will ever give them peace is a relationship with God. And it's our job really to give them, you know, an opportunity to know Christ Jesus and to know his truth. Um, and that is an exciting opportunity uh, once you step into that field uh, and really start to deal with addiction. Um, oops. Before we go to the second part, I want to go back to, just, just reiterate one point here, and that is, um, talking about dopamine, which is one of the brain chemicals for you, those of you who are here this morning, and talk about just how addic addictions really form again before we go into trying to deal with them. And I want to highlight a couple of things. One of them was that dopamine's release causes euphoria. Now, so when someone says they got high, the feeling of being high is mediated by this chemical right here, dopamine. So when someone says, I got high, I got blitzed, I was blasted out of my mind, I was plastered, all of those terms 
are, are street terms for the neurochemical process of a massive rush of dopamine in the process of being inebriated by many, many chemicals uh, can do it. And what happens is all of these different pathways funnel down like a big funnel and they end in dopamine causing this, this rapid, quick, massive amount of pleasure. And that pleasure is what makes you addicted because your body is designed by God that that pleasure, the natural pleasure you get from drinking water or eating good food or, or you know, going for a brisk walk, uh, those natural releases of dopamine, you're supposed to want to do them again. That's how we survive, even procreation. It, there's a pleasure attached to it so that you'd want to do it again so that the earth would be populated. However, when you use chemicals and hijack the system, you create a, it's more pleasure than technically you were ever naturally supposed to have. You get that? So when someone does cocaine, they get more dopamine pleasure than they were ever supposed to have. And that is what makes it so that they cannot do every other bodily function, every other social issue and function is all sidelined so that they can go after getting that high again. The problem they have is a, is a term called tachyphylaxis, and that means, it's a medical term that means you begin to develop tolerance to the chemical or to the drug. So what happens to these people is they start doing cocaine, but after a while, where one line used to get them high, two lines after a while gets them high, three lines gets them high, after a while they're just chasing their tail because they can't get enough cocaine in all at once to really give them that feeling. And the feeling is a, a, a blunted feeling. And this is why you get so many overdoses. Because people are almost always trying to get back that first high. When the dopamine system is like a, a virgin system, it's never had this massive overload. Once you have this massive overload of, of dopamine put out, it is all, it's so super uh, pleasurable. The problem is, once you mess the system up, you can't really ever set it back to zero again. And even years later, that's why people relapse. They relapse because they think, well, maybe now I can get that first feeling back. Something else is going on in their life, as we'll talk about, so they try and go back and get it. I say all of that to say two things. One, if you're someone who gets into, into being addicted in this way, at some point it stops being simply a moral decision and it becomes really a disease. Now, I believe there's a moral component. I believe that initially, especially when people choose to take crack cocaine or heroin or many other addictive substances, that's where the moral decision takes place. But six years into it, they really want to quit. And guess what? They literally cannot. And what I mean by that is they try and come off of it and the withdrawal symptoms are so terrible, so strong, so painful, so powerful that they will continue to go back to getting that hit every single time. That's what makes addiction so potent. And why you have, if you have had family members that are in this addiction trap, you say to yourself, why would this fool keep doing this? But you don't understand from a basic physiological, neurophysiological standpoint, their body craves that more than common sense anything else. If you don't get that, you won't be a good minister to this population. Because you'll be judgmental, you'll be beating them up, you'll think all they have to do is grit their teeth and work harder, and you don't realize if they don't get the tools with which to do it, one, and two, if they don't have um, something to replace the, 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 the pain or to something to replace the, the kind of the numbing effect on the pain that the drug has, you won't ever get to them either. You understand? So what happens is, if you don't ever deal with what caused them to become an addict in the first place, then you're not going to move them from being an addict. 
All right, let me um, let me move on. But I wanted to just re clarify that. And nicotine, of course, is probably the best example, very researched. This water's like tea. Very warm, that's okay. It's probably better for me. <laughs> uh, Romans chapter 7, Paul actually describes this. He says, for that which I do, I allow not. For I, what I would, that do I not. But that what I hate, that do I. If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. Now then it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good, I find not. This is the Apostle Paul speaking, who also says, I am chief among sinners. But he's really laying out kind of a, 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 um, um, a more spiritual, theological backdrop in Romans chapter 7 and into chapter 8 for really behavior that we continue to do that we don't really want to do. I'm convinced that much of the behavior that we, I mean, and, and don't get me wrong, there are people who just like doing what they do. And, and until that changes, you, we're not going to be able to change their behavior patterns. But there are a lot of people who are trapped in doing things they really don't want to do and simply don't know how to get out of it. And every time they try to get out of it, they fail. And every time they fail, it resurrects the original pain that caused them that habit, that caused them that addiction in the first place. Here's why the love of Christ is so powerful. If you look back at Jesus and what he did when he met, um, you know, the woman caught in adultery, look at how he treated her. He didn't throw stones. He, you know, he could have said, yeah, the law does say to stone her. Go ahead and stone her. Instead, first of all, he deals with the hypocrisy of everyone else. But then he does something else. He says, where are your accusers? Why does he say that? I believe he says that in part because he understands that that woman, the original pain that caused her to be an adulterer in that society, being an adulterer was a very serious thing. It was punishable by death. Nothing like today where people just helter-skelter run around and have these hotel, no-tell, motel rendezvous and stuff. In that day and age, you got caught, you could be killed as a woman. So what pain drove her to where she would actually do it? It was probably because of the way she was spoken to as a child. It may be that she was, for all we know, molested as a child. I mean, we don't know what pain existed in her early life that only Jesus could fully read. And Jesus had to let her off the hook of the cycle of guilt that would send her to being an adulteress. You get what I'm saying? He, he had to liberate her from the original pain that sent her into the situation in the first place. He wouldn't tell her to go and sin no more before he liberated her. So he liberates her first. Neither do I condemn you. That is a powerful statement coming from the Son of God. That's a powerful statement. And she knew who she was dealing with. She saw the effect he had on the religious leaders. I'm sure she'd heard all of the things about Jesus. Neither do I condemn you. Then he says, go and sin no more. He freed her to not have to, see, to sin anymore. The woman at the well. You have, well, you say you have no husband. You've had five and none of them were your, and the man you're with now isn't your husband. That woman was liberated, right? She didn't get mad that Jesus called her on her stuff. She said, you're a prophet. And she ran into the city and started telling everybody else. He liberated her. And we could go on, the demoniacs. I mean, all the way through, Jesus liberates people from whatever pain caused their situation. 
whatever guilt caused their situation, he gives them an opportunity to walk from it, which is why I think Judas is such a tragic story. Because Judas would have been liberated, and yet he chose to follow Satan anyway. So that's one of the things that have happened. Here's the rest of, of the verses I want out of Romans 7. He says, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. I find then a law that when I do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Paul is really trying to say that we are in war. All of us are. And that war, really, is a war between our flesh and our spirit, and that spirit being the spirit, the part of us that interacts with God, our minds. Um, what we allow in determines how we will respond to the life God wants for us. The reason that what we eat, what we watch, what we listen to, all the things we talked about this morning are important is because they set the stage to how you respond to the calling that God has on your life. Can you hear his calling over the noise of the world or not? The Bible says that the love of Christ constraineth us. Can you feel his love, or are you being pulled by so many forms of false and pseudo-love that you never actually get to feel the love that God has for you? And that's the battle. The battle is really freeing us up so that we can feel God's love on our lives, his calling on our lives. And so we start habits and addictions that feed the flesh and destroy the spirit within us. Um, and is your flesh stronger than your spirit is the question. Is your flesh stronger than your spirit? Are you doing things that feed your flesh so that your spirit is drowned out and, and weakened? And that's the question. And one of the reasons why the Adventist lifestyle is a powerful lifestyle, because overall it works to strengthen the spirit. And a lot of people say we do things that it doesn't make sense. Or why do you forbid wine? Why do you, you, know, you know, deal with jewelry the way you do? Why you? They don't understand that it's, it's really about feeding the spirit and starving the flesh. And when you starve the flesh and feed the spirit, you get victory. You feed the flesh and it's difficult to gain victory. That's why you see these, these uh, uh, I saw um, there was a whole thing on the, the, the pastor in uh, Colorado who was um, the head of the president of the evangelical National Council or something, he was, I'm trying to remember, is it Haggerty his last name? Is it Haggerty, Ted Haggerty? And he was, he was um, very anti-gay marriage, and, and then it turned out he had these gay liaisons and relationships. And, but the problem is, a lot of our Sunday brothers and sisters, the lifestyle, of, the Christian lifestyle that they're living feeds the flesh just as much as it feeds the spirit. And so that you're putting up with it, and not that any of us are exempt. We each have to make sure we're feeding our spirit and not our flesh. But if you don't, if you don't have a real Sabbath every week, the Sabbath should, should be 24 solid hours where your spirit is fed and your flesh is starved. You get what I'm saying? It should be a, a, a total renewing every seven days. Our daily morning devotion, the fact that we don't listen to secular music, these things should starve greatly starve the flesh and really feed the spirit. And a lot of us, that's what we're not doing. We're fighting the fight of works, but we don't fight the fight of faith. The fight of faith feeds the spirit. 
All right, so these are that picture on the right is a real picture I use in my, um, thank you so much. And our needs assessment um, in Orange County, because we have some pretty serious problems with, uh, with drinking and binge drinking um, in Orange County. So I put that picture there as a part of showing the feeding of the flesh. And it says, be not deceived, God is not mocked, whatsoever man sow, the same shall he reap. If you sow for instant gratification, you will reap an instant destruction. Now, the destruction may not come right when, the, when you sow in it, but when the destruction comes, it comes like it came for Michael Jackson this week. Michael Jackson's only 50 years old. As far as I know, he's a vegetarian most of his life. He was a pretty small guy. He really shouldn't have a heart attack at 50 years of age on paper. Yet he did. What did it? Now they're saying in the news today, probably really was related to drugs. And in his case, prescription drugs that he was given. Your heart is very sensitive. One Christmas I was working um, at the urgent care in Loma Linda and like a 30-year-old guy comes in and he's having crushing substernal chest pain. I do an EKG on this guy and he has tombstone signs. He has these massive SD segment elevation, really in, in bad cardio um, situation, having, basically having a massive heart attack at 30. And I'm like, man, he's young. He initially denies cocaine, amphetamines, everything. But you know, as the lab work starts coming in, I'm like, dude, you're having a massive heart attack and you're 30 years old. You've got to tell me why you're having this heart attack. And he breaks down, he says, well, we were celebrating the holiday, and so we decided to do some cocaine and some, and some crystal methamphetamines. And of course, the combination, they're what we call vasoconstrictors. And in his case, they probably selectively chose to constrict all of the, um, the um, capillaries, arteries around his heart and he had a massive heart attack. We had to rush him across, he had to be, and those are tough cases because that's not cholesterol, it's not a blockage. The actual vessel is clamped down like this. So even when they run, you know, do a, a catheter and try and run it and open them up, it's often very difficult. They really gotta give him massive doses of medicine to dilate his vessels back open. So you know all of the pleasure you're seeking and in an instant, bam! The whole thing spins on you. And I mean, I can talk about Anna Nicole and Elvis Presley and, Kurt Cobain, I mean, I, I could go on and on. Jimi Hendrix, I mean, the devil loves to set us up, give you all the pleasure, give you all the fame up front, and then on the back end, yank it all back with interest. Yeah. With interest. Because now, not only do you not have fame or glory on this earth, you often aren't even going into eternal life. I mean, can you imagine being that rich, famous all your days on earth, and you, you wake up in the second resurrection? You see the new Jerusalem coming down? And some of these people actually know better. Some of them, I mean, you know, Michael Jackson's family, they weren't Adventists, they were Jehovah's Witness, but I mean, I would assume he knows something about right or wrong from just being raised Jehovah's Witness. So imagine when he wakes up and it's the wrong resurrection. How much money can save you then? All, he sold 750 million albums. Guess how much it'll matter as he's looking up at the New Jerusalem coming down? It won't matter at all. All right. My, this text, every time I use it, it goes in. Let me go back. So I want to read this text again from this morning. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalted itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. 
I want you to understand that one of the things Paul talks about is having weapons. He talks about having weapons. And weapons to me, uh, and talking about warfare, means that this is not loosey-goosey, we don't just kind of jump in, but that we ought to have some strategy, some plan from God's word as to how to address these things. When we're dealing with addiction, we ought to not just be like, okay, well, you know, cold turkey, just stop doing it. But we should have a bit more of a structured uh, um, plan in doing it. Now, one of the ones I, I pulled offline is this one, and they, this is a plan that they try to use to help people, and it's prevention. And they do this in schools, prevention, have a plan, know your purpose, pull away, put new behaviors in place, change your habits, and promote drug-free living. So this is like a plan that they use at schools to try and get kids either to never go on drugs or if, they've, if they started using them to actually um, get off. An ounce of prevention, my grandmother would always say, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Probably better to say, you know, a nickel's worth of prevention is worth $5 worth of cure. Realistically, if you just never get into these things, it works the best. What, there's a, I saw one study once that said one out of every 10 people who tries alcohol will become an alcoholic at some point in their life. That's dependent on it or abuse it at some point in their life. One out of 10 people who just try it. One of the reasons that it's not good to try it, you don't know which one of the 10 you are. And if you have alcoholics in your family, you're probably more likely to be the one of the 10. Um, so not having people ever start these things in the first place is probably the best defense. You should have a plan. Now, and I, when I talk about plan, when I go to speak to youth groups, even secular youth groups, I always tell them, if there's something you don't want to do, you should have a way out of it before you get into it, number one. And number two, you ought to have a plan not to get into it. If you don't want to drink alcohol, you really shouldn't go to a frat party where they're going to have kegs and everybody's going to be drinking. That's a bad, it's a bad plan to say, I'll go in there and just watch them all drink. It doesn't really make sense. Um, same with sex. I, I tell young people, you, you don't want to have sex before you're married? You probably should never end up on the backseat of somebody's car. A little bit, you know, a little bit blunt, but the truth of the matter is, if you really want to be pure, your purity ought to put you in a situation that you, you I mean, put you in situations that don't jeopardize your purity. You have to be intentional about it. Um, so pull away and teaching people how to say no, uh, putting new behaviors in place like we've been talking about this morning, and promoting drug-free living. One of the ways to actually overcome addiction is to help other people get off of drugs and over addiction. Long term, that's one of the things that they do. So prevent. So I changed these up a little bit, and we'll go through seven of them. Um, and they will come more with a bit of a biblical principle. I put this in red to represent red wine because so many people think the Bible promotes the use of wine. And I put this in here as, the, as our prevention message. It says, look not upon the wine when it is red, when it giveth its color in the cup, when it moveth itself aright, at the last, it biteth like a serpent and stingeth like an adder. People skip this verse of the Bible because people say the Bible does not forbid the use of fermented wine. Here's the verse that not only forbids the use of it, it says not even to look at it. Remember, in ancient times, they didn't understand organic chemistry and general chemistry. They didn't know what was actually happening to the wine when it went from being unfermented to fermented. And so Solomon, the wisest man to live in the Old Testament says, once that wine gets these characteristics, which is a description of fermentation, don't touch it. At that point, it only causes you trouble. And there's another verse he has, uh, wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging, whosoever is deceived thereof is not wise. 
Yet people will tell you the Bible has nothing against using wine. How could Jesus in the New Testament then turn the water into fermented wine if he was studying this verse? It was just grape juice. But there's no law against grape juice. But once you ferment the wine, it works the, what we talked about this morning, it will block the release of GABA and change your behavior, lower your threshold, and cause you to engage in behavior you otherwise would never engage in. And I've seen it. I've seen people come in beaten. I've seen people in terrible car accidents because they had alcohol. I was working at an emergency room in Blythe, California. Anybody here from Blythe? Blythe is a hot, lonely place. I was out there in January. And I'm telling you, it was as hot in January as it is out here now. And I remember it was, it was, it was New Year's Eve. I worked that night shift in the ER. Um, and a guy took his girlfriend out to celebrate New Year's. This celebration stuff gets people in trouble, I think. Um, he gets drunk, and he wrecks his truck out in the middle of the desert somewhere. And he hits his face on either the mirror or something and, just, and rips, rips his face wide open. Like this, drunk. He's so drunk, he doesn't really feel the pain of it. You know what I mean? So he's not screaming in pain. He comes back and he's screaming. You know, she's in the, in the, in the gurney next to him when they come into the emergency room. He's screaming, you're not gonna love me because I'm so ugly now. You know, I mean, that's what he's worried about. I'm like, listen, sir, you better hope we get you through the night um, <laughs> before you worry about your looks. Um, but you know, alcohol will do it. You do things that you otherwise would never do. Solomon says, if you want to not make stupid decisions, don't ever start drinking alcohol, fermented wine in the first place. And there's your text, if anybody tells you the, the Bible allows the use of wine. Um, so the second thing for those who get involved in these things is to confess. Uh, Philippians 2.13 says, it is, good, uh, it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Part of what we have to remind people of is that when it comes to overcoming addiction or bad habits, the battle is really not yours, it's the Lord's. And a lot of times we get to the point where we're like, okay, I'm gonna grit my teeth and fight and beat this thing. And guess what happens? You fail. Why do you fail? I said it this morning. Anytime you focus all of your attention on yourself, you're going to fail. You've gotta, if you wanna overcome sin, focus on Christ. He says, if I be lifted up, I'll draw men unto me. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. And he's, it's not about us, but that's what we want to do. We take our sin and we say, okay, I've got to fix this. Well, if you're fixing it, you're in control. Can you be in control and God be in control at the same time? And part of the problem when we're dealing with bad habits and addictions is we're trying to fix it. We're trying to overcome it. We're fighting the addiction ourselves. And we're doing it to try and honor God. We're doing it even for the right reasons. But at the end of the day, every time we focus back on ourselves, more than we focus on Christ, the outcome is not going to be good. Our life's focus in all things must always be on Christ. If you learn to do that, the whole game changes and it becomes a lot easier. Once you focus on yourself, it's very difficult. Another text here says, confess your faults one to another that you may be healed for the effectual fervent prayers of a righteous man availeth much. That's from Peter. Um, and there's, so there's two sides to confession. One is the confession that we need to make to God. And I can put a zillion texts in here on repentance and confession. But the other one is there is a, a, a value to us 
confessing our faults one to another. Right? Now, that's tough because you got to make sure you choose the right people to talk to. You got to have people you can trust. But there's, it's, there's something. And that's what I saw at the addiction treatment unit. Those groups that they would set up took on their own conscience. And those guys actually began to keep each other in check. And it was amazing because each of them were addicts, but it was amazing how powerfully moral they became when they were dealing with the other person's stuff. How clearly they could see why the other person was doing wrong, even when they couldn't see what they were doing wrong. And the group conscience then works in a healing way. Church, on some level, is supposed to have that. Paul says in the book of Hebrew, uh, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. There's a power that comes when we come together and say, look, you know, I'm really struggling with this thing. But a lot of times our pride says, I don't want anybody to know I'm struggling with it. And in Adventism, some circles, if you say you're struggling with something, that's enough to get tossed out the circle. And that's got to change. We've got to have places where people can go and say, you know, I've made a mistake. You know, I, I did this thing. I'm, I'm struggling with this thing. I need your prayer. And it be confidential. And that small group of friends and believers is able to pray for one another and really help people move through it. I've been reading more and more Roger Minot, who really writes incredible books on prayer um, and has an incredible testimony. And, he, and he, one of the points he makes over and over and over again is when we're dealing with difficult things, it is important to have, uh, to invite God into the situation, to give him permission to work on, uh, in our situation. But more importantly, to invite him into other people's situations. There are people that don't invite God into their lives. But guess what? If you go on your knees and you say, Lord, I'm praying for sister so-and-so, or I'm praying for this person at work that doesn't even know you, that is enough permission for God to begin to work on that person's behalf. Because what Satan will say is you can't work on this person because this, no, this person hasn't asked for your help and no one else has. That's how Roger Minot explains it. So when we, you know, so every now and again you meet someone and you say, man, that person really needs to, you know, I really wish this person knew the Lord. But you don't know the person well enough or you just, you work with them in an environment where you can't really be openly spiritual with them. The first step before you even open your mouth and say anything is to go on your knees in your prayer time and intercede on that person's behalf. And especially when someone is addicted to drugs or alcohol, somebody's got to be interceding for that person. Because that person is no longer in their right mind. The fact that GABA's being knocked out every day, the fact that these dopamine overloads are happening, they're not even in the right place to make a good decision. And unless someone else, and this is why we, you know, I, I go to a lot of churches and the parents says, you know, my son is, he's off smoking weed, marijuana's so big, such a popular drug now, or some other drugs, but, you know, alcohol, you know, and I, I'm giving up on my son, I don't know what to do, and I'll say, do not stop praying. Prayer doesn't cost you anything, and you can pray for that individual from now until the second coming. And, and God will continue to work on your son's behalf. And the day your son turns, like the prodigal, the Bible says that he, he came to himself. Could it be that his, you know, being it as a parable, could it be that his father was actually praying for him? And that allowed the Spirit of God to move on him for him to come to himself? It's imperative if you want to fight addiction, and others especially, that you intercede for them. And even praying for yourself to gain the victory over these things. Really putting these things before God in prayer. The third thing is to empty yourself of self. Um, David says, and this is Psalms chapter 51, for thou desirest not sacrifice. 
else would I give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. Powerful stuff right there. And this is one of the reasons what a lot of the, the, the way that we, a lot of the churches are run in all denominations now, I really worry because it's more self-exaltation in church than it is broken and contrite spirit. Think about it. We, I mean, we're, we're turning church people into celebrities. These, these, these mega pastors, they all have their own planes. Helicopters. I, I, I went to, um, I was in Atlanta, I spoke at one of the Adventist churches in Atlanta, and they took me on a tour. They showed me Evander Holyfield's house. I mean, this thing is like a big, gigantic place. I almost think he deserves it the amount of times he's been hit in the head. Um, <laughs> and then you drive, they take me to a Creflo Dollar's house. It's like you pulled up to the gates of Jerusalem. These giant golden gates, um, big mansion, helicopter pad in the backyard. They said that when he has to go, because he preaches in New York Saturday night and, and then is flown back Saturday night to preach in Atlanta Sunday morning, he doesn't drive to the airport to get his private plane. A helicopter takes him from his house to the airport, which isn't very far away. You know how much in fuel cost that is? They say he spends like five or $10,000 each way to New York in fuel. $10,000 each way. It's ridiculous. Now, the point being, the point really being, once you start making turning Christianity into a stage, this whole pr process of really being humble and simple and meek goes out the window. And that's the problem with a lot of the gospel music now and a lot of the Christian music is, you, you, people are trying to sell themselves. And as a, again, once you start focusing on yourself, what happens? The devil steps in. I, I warned the people at my church, and, I, I, was, and I, I, I preach primarily at very liberal churches. I'm not very popular because I don't change my message. And you can go to MontRubidoSDA.org and look at my last couple sermons, and you can see they almost wanted to beat me and run me out of the place. Um, but I, I preach the same message, and I actually think somebody's got to go into some of these churches and preach it because some of those, it's not their fault that they don't know some of, some of what some of us know. It's not their fault. Some of them have been baptized into those churches and have never heard the, the full message of the Adventist church. Um, you know, they never even heard it. I mean, how, how is it their fault? If they go to church, everybody wears jewelry. How are you going to get mad at them when they wear jewelry? Or how can you get mad at them when they dance in church when they were baptized into a church where everybody was dancing? They were dancing when they got baptized. You see what I mean? So somebody's got to go in there and, and really preach this stuff. But um, even at our church, I mean, you know, we, the, our choir just competed and won the best choir in the state of California um, in the McDonald's choir competition or something, and then went to Atlanta to compete again and lost in Atlanta. Um, but they idolized, on, in some ways, some of these gospel singers. And what I learned in my study of some of the gospel singers, they're no, more or less converted than anybody else. It's just that's their job now. And they really do a good job of promoting themselves. I mean, think about it. How do you have a gospel, like, music award? <laughs> think about that for a second. Yeah, who's voting? <laughs> I mean, who, who's voting on who? I mean, it doesn't make sense if you really think about it. But it all speaks to self-exaltation and creating super visible Christians. And then what happens? The rank and file think they're not Christians unless they have these incredible talents. And now they, they don't even call talents talents anymore. They call the talents gifts. Yeah. 
So people start thinking, well, somehow I don't have the Holy Spirit unless I have one of these gifts. And inside the Adventist church, this stuff is happening. I've been to Adventist churches where they're speaking in tongues. And I could run out of one of the churches I heard it in. I couldn't run out of the other one because I was up front and we were doing intercessory prayer. And I'm holding a lady's hand and she's telling me the devil's in her. While she's telling me that, and I'm like, like one eye open watching her praying at the same time. She, I hear somebody break out in tongues on the other side because they've got this idea now that you've got to have gifts. And I'm like, where are you getting this? But they get it because they pattern and model themselves after the superstars on Sunday. More and more of our preachers coming out of Oakwood College, which used to produce these phenomenal Bradfords, Brooks, Clevelands. They, I talk to these young guys now, they're like, well, I want to be like T.D. Jakes. You don't really want to be like T.D. Jakes. You, you don't know enough about T.D. Jakes to really want to be like T.D. Jakes. But that destroys your ability to get victory in your life. When you, make, when, you wanna, when you promote yourself all the time and you're lifting yourself up, you can't lift yourself up and lift Jesus up at the same time. And that's the evidence, and the evidence of that, I mean, I got, I've got whole seminars on just Christian, contemporary Christian music and gospel music, and the, the lyrics to some of the songs will blow your mind. I mean, there's songs where they talk about a circus and the clowns and nothing about anything, and it's a Christian song. Jesus is not said in it. God's not said in the song. It's promoting the person. We have to be very careful because we're living in a time when they're really, you know, the devil is trying to hijack the church by creating personalities. And he's doing a good job of it, actually. He's really doing a good job of creating personalities, and everybody wants to be a star in church now. But we each, if we're going to have victory in our lives, we have to be like David. We have to confess that we've sinned, admit we've done wrong. And David said something powerful in Psalms 51. He says, against you and you alone have I sinned. Even though he killed a man, committed adultery, lied, cheated, all the sin that went along with his sin that he had with Bathsheba, in the end, David doesn't say, I sinned against um, the Hittite, I, don't, I, I sinned against her husband, I sinned against Bathsheba, I sinned against the child that would have been born. He says, against you, and he makes sure to say, and you alone have I sinned. And that's important because you have to confess your sin and turn it back over to God and really empty yourself. And then David says later on in Psalm 51, he says, um, that the, so that I might teach transgressors your ways. And you know why a lot of ministry isn't effective? Because we haven't really dealt with sin. We got churches where there's all this secret sin going on, all this underground stuff going on. Now, even down low stuff, for those of you who know what the down low is, in our churches. And then they wonder why our churches aren't effective. Well, if the leaders are engaged in secret sin, they can't call sin sin. If you can't call sin sin, you can't really call on the blood of Jesus Christ to eradicate sin. If you don't want to deal with sin, you have to stop preaching the blood. And when you stop preaching the blood, and Roger Renaud, this is one of his big things, Matthew chapter 27, you stop preaching the blood you lose all spiritual effectiveness. And there's something else you automatically stop preaching. The second coming. One of the things that happen, you're sinning, you don't want to preach the second coming. You're hoping for more time. That's why you don't ever hear, you'll never hear Joel Osteen or T.D. Jakes or any of these guys go in front of a congregation and preach that Jesus is coming soon. That's not a popular message. People want to think that they're going to figure out a way to beat this whole thing. Remember Michael Jackson used to sleep in a 
hyperbaric oxygen chamber. Didn't do him a whole lot of good. A relationship with Jesus Christ would have done him a whole lot better. All right, so plan. Um, so when we are dealing with trying to overcome our, our, our addictions or our bad habits, um, Romans chapter 12, verse 21 says, be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. And a lot of times we go into these things, and one, we're trying to do it ourselves, but two, we're not even praying and asking God, you know, what does he want us to do? We just jump in and start doing. And, because, and then we fail. And uh, what was the addiction? Um, you have to ask the questions like, what was the addiction initially trying to heal? What was it that the person began to self-medicate for? And when I say it, medicate, I mean medicate with food, medicate with sex, medicate with gambling. What is it about, what is it about that behavior or that chemical that that person is trying to, to heal? And I can tell you if you, start to, if you start to look at people and ask them those questions, you actually get deeper into what's really going on. And if you look at how Jesus even dealt with the demoniac boy when his father brought him to him, he said, how long has this, how long has this been? Jesus gets to the root of it. What's, what's really going on? And we have to do that. When we come across people that are dealing with these problems, we need to talk to them and find out, what was your childhood like? What, and I mean, we don't need to do, you know, pop pseudo-psychology like a lot of the preachers do either. But we do need to talk to people and get to know them a little bit and build a real relationship. A lot of times we're so busy trying to get people into the water to be baptized, we forget that they're people. And that's one of the reasons why the retention rates at many churches are so low. We don't actually even get to know the people. We just, we just want numbers that we can bring back to the conference. We baptized 50 people. Good. Let's see in a year how many of them are still around. That's far more an important indicator to me than how many people you made wet. And that's really what we do at a lot of our churches. I remember I was in, when I was in Anniston, Alabama, doing my family practice residency, we, the, the, a new pastor came in, a young guy, um, and he really wanted to get his numbers flowing. Our church was, there were like 14, 15 of us every week in Anniston at that church. And so he wanted to get his numbers up. And I shouldn't say it like that. He wanted to baptize people. I'll leave it there. And so he had a revelation seminar. But then I found out he was skipping certain lessons. And I didn't know which ones he'd skip because I couldn't go every day. I was on calls, but I didn't know. So finally we go to baptize in the public swimming pool for the city. It was a glorious occasion. We had like 12 people come in. That was probably, that would have like literally doubled the size of the church. So we're all happy. And we baptize this one guy. And he's all happy. He comes out of the water and we're all happy. I'm driving home. This guy's in the car next to me smoking a cigarette. He just, he's still wet. And I said, something's wrong with this picture. Now, if he's got a real addiction, I understand how hard it is to quit. He may not quit right away, but the fact that the brother lit up on the way home, yeah. wet, with us all around him tells me he didn't hear one of our messages or something. <laughs> so the next week we have potluck, and this brother brings like um, uh, pork sausages or something. I said, they missed a whole set of topics. And sure enough, we pulled the guy aside and we're like, you know, you know, as Adventists, we don't smoke and we don't, um, we don't, we abstain from, from swine, pork products, you know, trying to be really nice because it really isn't, is it his fault? I don't think it's his fault. And the guy's like, what? You mean if I join this church, I can't eat pork? 
was livid. He felt he had been duped. And he was mad, and now the last time we ever saw him. You can't want to get the people in the pool so fast that you don't. And when we were growing up, it was like six, eight weeks people studied the Bible before they joined the church. So that you, they were rooted and grounded in the word. They understood what we believed. It wasn't like you're pulling the wool over their eyes or playing on their emotions to push them in the water. And people now say, well, if they, they took a stand, let them be baptized. But the Bible says to teach and then baptize. It's important that they know what they're joining. I mean, you're not just baptizing them into the general Christian church. It's a very specific denomination. So that's a problem. And we don't, a lot of them, we don't get to know the people. So we don't know what really is hurting them. We don't know what they're dealing with. They, they, could, have, they could have been anything. Criminals, you know, and not that being a criminal is a problem for them to join the church, but we may need to really help them with getting a job with, with, so they don't go back to jail. But if we don't get to know the people, we'll never be able to help them. And in the case of addiction especially, you really have to make sure that you're not putting a Band-Aid on a, on, a, on, a, on a gushing wound. Because if they have real pain in their life that has never been dealt with, you're not going to fix it superficially. You may have to go beyond the norm to really try and get them to where they feel as if, you know, not just feel, but where they know that some of those past things are behind them. And that they can move on from there. Like Jesus did with the woman, who, where are your accusers? Then it's important to execute the plan. He says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. I like verse 1 of Romans 12 where it says that we should present our bodies as a living sacrifice, and then he says that this is our reasonable service. Again, going back to the sanctuary, we talked about the sanctuary a little bit this morning. Really, we be, we're supposed to be a part of that process now in that we're supposed to be, we're supposed to sacrifice self and pride. That's what's supposed to be sacrificed. And part of the reason that people are tripped up and they actually fall back into addictive behavior or can't get victories over their habits is that pride and self rise up new. And a lot of times what happens is we think, well, I've done it. I've gained the victory. It's all over. And we stop leaning on Jesus. We stop trusting in God like Peter did when he stepped out of the boat onto the water. He took his eyes off of Jesus. You are never safe to take your eyes off of Jesus. Never in your life are you ever safe to, to glance away even for a second. And the minute you do, you will begin to sink. In fact, I almost would think the closer you ever were to Christ, the more you study, the, the more of a Christian you are, the more damaging it is when you take your eye off of Jesus. But we have to be conformed. And, and part of executing the plan really is, I say, again, Building the relationship with Jesus Christ. I want to really re reiterate and emphasize fighting the fight of faith. Really working on exercising and building the kind of faith that the Bible says Abraham believed and it was counted to him for righteousness. Was Abraham perfect? But he had faith. Was David perfect? Nope. He had faith. And God, and really, let me put it this way, Christ really looks for those who through faith will accept the free gift of the sacrifice that he made. 
and have that blood applied to their life. The blood is the key. The blood is the key. And a lot of times what we do is we stop accepting the work of the blood and want to, again, pull back and do it ourselves. We mess the plan up. Remember that he, Jesus paid it all. I like, there's a quote from Ellen White I should have put in here, um, where she says, we should work as if all of the responsibility is ours, but believe as if all of the power for it to be done comes from God. So we have our part to play in it, but we should never get crazy into thinking somehow we can solve the problem. Even, the Bible says, even our righteousness is as filthy rags. All right, so breaking the chains, accepting forgiveness. Um, in John, Jesus says, if the, if the Son therefore shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. I think that's John 8, 36. If the Son therefore shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. One of the problems that we have as Christians is that a lot of times we continually relive our old sins. And what happens is people don't believe they were actually forgiven. And you know what we do? We say, okay, so you keep asking for forgiveness for a sin you've already asked forgiveness for, that you've already repented of, that you should have already moved on from. But the problem with that, and Roger Minot talks about this in his books when you're in prayer, about prayer, the problem with doing that is you show a lack of faith. You're questioning the the ability of Christ to do what he said he's going to do. So 20 years later, you, 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 you mean you've dealt with this thing, you, 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 you've, you've repented of it, you've asked God's forgiveness. Once, you, once you've done that, you've got to move on. And you know, Roger Minot makes a good, gives a really good piece of advice. He says, instead of asking for forgiveness over again, what we ought to do is thank God for forgiving us already. If you thank God for, now that's once you've actually repented of the sin and asked God for true forgiveness and you've given up the sin, When you do that, you empower your faith in God. But if you do the opposite, and every time you think 20 years back about a time when you, you know, I don't know, you stole something. (laughs) I'll just make something up. And every time you think about it, ah, that was so terrible, Lord, forgive me. It's as if you're saying he couldn't have forgiven you the other thousand times you asked for it. Which means you don't trust the power of the blood. Which means your whole salvation is in jeopardy. If you want victory in your life over addictions and bad habits, when you leave, when you, whatever you've done in your past, and I've met people who have done all kinds of things. I remember I was preaching, um, and uh, after I, I preached a message, a young man came up to me, um, and he said, I, I need to talk to you. He pulled me aside. He said, that message was for me. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, I, I, I was a homosexual. He said, I can't even count the number of partners I've had. And I said, man, I said, and you, you're coming to church. He said, God gave me victory over that lifestyle. He said, I've been delivered. He said, in fact, he turned around, he pointed, he said, that's my wife and those are my two children. Who the son has set free is free indeed. And he said something that this brother said this morning that's powerful. He said, I don't consider myself to be um, a whatever the rest of my life. People will say, you know, well, I'm an alcoholic the rest of my life. But this brother said, no, I don't accept that. I'm a new creature in Jesus Christ. And I believe that when the Bible says that, I believe it. And by believing it, he said, once I believed it, I began to behave like I believed it. And if I believed it, I went and got me a wife and started having some children. But a lot of people stay in their past sin. They bathe in their past sin. 
They wallow in their past sin. They never move past their past sin. And what that does is it binds them over and over again. And the devil is the accuser of the brethren. He loves when we question God's ability to remove sin from us. The Bible makes it clear. Jesus, Jesus, I've taken your sin. I've cast them into the sea of forgetfulness. He will visit them and remember them no more. If God will not remember your sin, why do you do it? Why? Much of the pain that causes addiction comes from us trying to self-medicate the pain of past sin or abuse or other things that we feel guilt over. A lot of addiction is born out of guilt. And addiction thrives in secret. You should write that down if you're writing stuff down. Addiction thrives in secret. People are usually not openly and, and obviously addicted. They try to hide it. Right? A real alcoholic does not like to drink around other people. They like to take their bottle and go sit in a corner somewhere and drink it. Real sex addicts love the internet. Because here's a chance for them in private, in secret, to hide away and do all of the stuff that they probably, you know, they know shouldn't be, they shouldn't be doing. Addiction thrives in secret. Cocaine addicts. Crack addicts, heroin addicts, they like to get away and do things and try and hide from you. That's why addiction produces such terrible lies out of the mouths of the addict. That's why Jesus says something powerful. He says, in secret said I nothing. Jesus never lived in secret. This is why I tell the young people don't join fraternities, sororities, masons, any of that stuff. Anybody that says you got to swear a secret that you can't tell everybody else, by default, that can't be of God. Because anything of God is light. And why would you take light and hide it? So I always, I mean, it's amazing. I mean, our young people still join this stuff, even the Masons. I'm like, don't you know not to join the Masons? And they look at it, joining the Masons, I'm like, all right, you're being the Illuminati before it's all over, I guess. Breaking the chains. So, oh, share your testimony. Um, with others. Revelation 12 verse 10 says, and I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now has come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. And they overcame him how? By the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And three, talking about being selfless, and they loved not their lives unto death. Here is the formula for victory in this verse. The blood, testimony, and selflessness. A powerful trio to defeat sin in your life and even to help other folks defeat sin in their lives. I, wanna, I really want to focus here on the testimony part of it, though, because we we're going to stop in two minutes, right? Um, I want to focus on the testimony part of it. There is power that comes when you can stand up in front of people and say, this is what I used to be. And God gave me victory over it. it. The forces of the enemy hate when someone stands up and says, Jesus did this for me. He gave me victory. He gave me deliverance. I am a new creature. Old things are passed away. The old things are gone. And when we get victory, one of the ways that you strengthen your victory not to exalt yourself, but you elevate Jesus Christ and say, I have found the living Savior. I know he's alive because he's come into my life and he's given me victory over my sin. 
And you don't have to necessarily do that from the pulpit, right? But it's something that ought to be done. When you get victory and when you have a walk with Christ, and even if you, I mean, some of us are raised in the church and you have no exotic and dramatic, you know, conversion story. You know, you weren't like, you know, in a burning building and angels came and lifted you to safety. That's okay. You do need to be able to say, you know what? I stayed with, I say this all the time. I don't have any, I really don't have a dramatic, you know, I was raised at Venice. I believe it's dramatic because I know some of the stuff I went through that other people don't know. But I tell people all the time, if it wasn't for Jesus, I wouldn't be a doctor. I might have been a gangbanger. I might have been carjacking you instead of trying to help you right now. I grew up in rough streets in Hartford and in Miami. But the church was a, was a, was a, was a hedge around me. And once I knew who Jesus was, all of my eyesight was lifted up above this world. Even from a young age, I understood he was coming back. Made the world a different place to live in. And I mean, there were times when I drifted back into some foolishness. But overall, I can tell you that I have a testimony that says, not that God pulled me out of stuff, he kept me out of stuff. I didn't have, there's a stuff that I didn't have to experience because I know Jesus Christ. And that's a testimony in and of itself. And on top of that, there's stuff that I did get into that he did pull me out of. And I praise God that I know Jesus. And that Jesus, his love has had an effect on my life. That's why my favorite verse, I say it all the time, I learned it as a pathfinder. The love of Christ constraineth us. It's a powerful verse. And when you understand that verse, you understand you're not supposed to constrain yourself. The love of Christ should be working in you to give you victory in your life. We're going to break for 15 minutes, and we'll start back up at 4.45-ish. All right. We'll pray. pray. Okay, he wants, well, let's pray to close our this first session. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for this time together, and we thank you for the powerful word that is in your scripture. Let us, Lord, take it in as, 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 as bread, Lord, that we would be nourished by your word, and that, Lord, we would even take the power of your blood and apply it, have it applied to our lives. Father God, let no one leave here and think that they cannot be victorious over sin. And more importantly, Lord, let them not leave here and think they cannot be instrumental in, in helping others to find the power in you that will give others the victory over sin. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.